Have you ever stopped and thought about all the people who played a part in the cup of coffee that you drink at morning tea? There's the farmers who grow the beans, or the sugar cane, or the trees for the paper cups, or who milk the cows. There's all the people involved in the manufacture of those products, those who transport them, the salespeople who sell them, the teachers who train the barista and the other workers in that process. Then there's the people who provide all sorts of other things around the process, water, electricity, plumbing, building, maintaining and cleaning trucks and coffee machines and refrigerators and farms and shops. And all of them do their work before the barista combines the ingredients together to make the coffee that you and I enjoy. Imagine if you stopped and thought like this about every object or service that you used in a day. It would transform the way you viewed life and work. And I think you'd be a lot more thankful for the work that people do. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to think about the ways in which work is good. We'll think about how it's good for others, how it's good for us, and thirdly, how it's good for God and for his purposes. So firstly, work is good for others. Uh, Jesus said the two most important commands were to love God and to love our neighbour. But love is more than just a feeling, love is action. You love your neighbour by doing good to them. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century Puritan uh, author, wrote, Just as love is the main principle in the heart of a real Christian, so the labour of love is the main business in the Christian life. It's our main thing, the labour of love, doing good for people. Uh, In his letter to, to Titus, the Apostle Paul spells out what Titus should teach the Christians Uh, to be doing in his church and there's all sorts of commands but there's one command Paul gives again and again and again. See if you can pick up what it is. Titus chapter 2 verse 6 Similarly encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything set them an example by doing what is good. 2.14, eight verses later Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, to show true humility. And I want to... uh, Chapter 3, verse 8. I want to stress... uh, I want you to stress these things so that those who trust in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what's good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. And just in case Titus hadn't got the message yet, chapter 3 verse 14, the second last verse in the whole letter, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Sounds a little bit like nagging really, doesn't it? I I think we've picked it up. I can imagine Titus saying, okay, Paul, I've got it. Uh, We're called to do good for people. God has called called us to it. But more than that, God's even prepared the good works that we're to do. Uh, This verse, I I think you've probably heard, Ephesians 2.10 says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works 
which God prepared in advance for us to do. He wants us to do them and he prepares them for us to do. Uh, Jonathan Edwards thinks about this idea of God planning our good works and he writes, God has made you for himself and for the good of your fellow creatures and not only for yourself. He's placed before you higher and nobler ends than self, even the welfare of your fellow men and of society and the interests of his kingdom. The true Christian lives for these ends. So God's plan for us is that we are doing good works. What's that got to do with work? Well, one of the main places, one of the main ways that we can do good for people is in our work. We see a few examples of what that looks like in Luke chapter 3. Uh, John the Baptist is preaching that the kingdom, uh, the people need to repent because God's kingdom is near, but it's not enough just to be sorry. He says in verse 8, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, you show repentance by changed behaviour. And so the crowd says, well, what's the fruit look like? What should we do? Uh, And he answers verse 11, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none and the one who has food should do the same. In other words, life is not simply about looking after yourself. Share what you have with people. It may be possessions like cloaks, it might be food or money, but it might also be skills, it might be time. In the context of work, I think John is saying that the point of your work is not just to build assets for yourself. You can work so you can afford to buy a jacket and even a second jacket. But the fruit of repentance in the life of the Christian worker means that work is not to buy a third jacket. Sharing what you've worked for with someone who doesn't have those things is what the fruit of work should be. John is saying that we're to be on the lookout for how we can share, not how we can accumulate. We need to have a strategic financial plan for how we can be generous, not how we can be rich. Uh, William Wilberforce, an active Christian, was a 19th century English politician best known for leading the movement that stopped the slave trade. Uh, I also found out that he helped set up the Church Mission Society as well as the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And here's what he said about the Christian's responsibility in the world. No man has a right to be idle. Where is it in such a world as this that wealth, leisure, affluence may not find some ignorance to instruct, some wrong to redress, some want to supply, some misery to alleviate. That's what you're looking for, not how to accumulate but how to give. Wilberforce spent his working life as a politician doing those things. And often it's at work that we have opportunities to do these sorts of things as well. Work is where we spend most of our time. Work is also where we're doing the things that we are normally good at, that we have some talents or some training to do. We actually have something to offer people within the sphere of work. Maybe it's medical knowledge 
but it could be computer or translation skills. It could even just be equipment that you have that someone else is able to use. Uh, Sometimes you're able to offer that for free, maybe in your own time or on a weekend, but often it'll mean that you offer to help people and then they pay you. Uh, That's okay, you're still helping people. I'm happy when my mechanic fixes my car or my plumber fixes my pipes. I pay him, sure, but I'm still, he's still blessing me and doing good to me uh, because those things are working properly and life is a lot better uh, when I have a good mechanic and a good plumber. Well, that's John's advice to the crowd in general. Be generous, be on the lookout for how you can share. Next he comes to the tax collectors. Verse 12, they say to John, what should we do? And John says, don't collect any more than you're required to. We can do good for people by being honest at work, by not taking advantage of them, by giving a fair day's work for a fair day's pay, by giving a fair quote even if the customer is desperate and doesn't have a choice. We had a plumber come and quote for some work at the manse last week and he said, oh, and once they start going, oh, you know, you, you just expect it, you'd start to feel the pain already. But he said, oh, it's only $450, it's a bit of pipe and a couple of hours work and, we, you know, it's a toilet so we want it to work quickly and we would have paid him double that. And he would know that but he blessed us by giving a fair day's, uh, a fair quote. Uh, for the Christian, that's the fruit of repentance. God has been merciful to you, so you're not taking advantage of others. Well, that's the tax collector. Verse 14, the soldiers chime in. What about us? John says, don't extort money, don't accuse people falsely and be content with your pay. Uh, once again, there's the theme of not taking advantage of people. Uh, soldiers... We could add policemen, security guards, council inspectors, parking officers and many others have authority and opportunity to actually harm people, to benefit themselves rather than showing justice. But John is saying the fruit of repentance doesn't do those things. The fruit of repentance is work that's fair and consistent. And then he also adds it means being content as well. Uh, content with your pay and your conditions. If you're content rather than greedy, you won't be motivated by what you can get from work and you'll be freed up to be motivated by what you can give to people. Motivated by the good that you can do to others rather than what you can receive. Get some satisfaction from that you'll actually be much happier if you're looking to uh, give rather than get. It's interesting when you think about this passage, yes, it's God's will that you're honest and fair and content, that's perhaps not surprising, Uh, but I think this passage is also telling us that it's God's will for society to run smoothly. It's God's will for society to run smoothly. The taxes are paid, that soldiers protect law and order and we can add that trains run on time and roofs are fixed and cars run reliably and clean water supplied and electricity supplies are reliable and light bulbs are replaced and traffic rules are enforced. It's God's will that all of that happens. 
God wants people to benefit from a fair distribution of resources, from access to government services, for, uh, for protection from danger and our work is how those things are provided to people. Let me give you another couple of passages to support that. Uh, Jeremiah 29, God's people are exiled in Babylon uh, but that's no excuse for them to just sit back and, uh, and stop working just because they're not working for the good of Jerusalem and so God says, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry, have sons and daughters, increase in number there, don't decrease, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. God actually wants Babylon to prosper. A fair, stable society means that God's people can grow and flourish in safety. That's not the only benefit though. 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says that all of us are to pray for kings and those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God wants a society that's governed well so that it's peaceful and so we should pray for kings and those in government and positions of authority. Why should we do that? Well, it says that God is pleased and wants all men to be saved. A stable, peaceful society actually helps people to be saved. Uh, The spread of the gospel is easier when society is peaceful. And God wants everyone to be saved, whether it's kings or those at the other end of society. And so we should pray for those in authority and for society to be like that. Christians doing good, reliable work help people and they contribute to our society being stable, helps God's purposes in spreading the gospel and people being saved. Let me turn to the story of Joseph and let's uh, think about that for a few moments. Uh, Joseph had one of the more interesting resumes that I've seen. I haven't seen it, but I can imagine. Let's go through and put together his resume. Uh, He began as a shepherd, uh, looking after his father's flock. His brother sold him to slave traders and convinced their father that he'd been killed. You know how there's sometimes those missing months in, uh, in a resume and you start to think, well, I wonder what he got up to then. Well, he was being transported to Egypt. Uh, He was sold to Potiphar, captain of the Pharaoh's guard. Uh, He rose, even though a slave, he rose to become the chief household steward, looking after the welfare of the entire household. Uh, Those of us who know the story know he was unjustly accused, thrown into prison without a trial. But even there in prison, he ended up in charge of all the prisoners, looking after their welfare. Genesis chapter 41, he finally got the chance to appear before Pharaoh and uh, he added to his uh, skill repertoire interpretation of dreams and prophecy. He interpreted Pharaoh's dream uh, about seven years of good harvests followed by seven years of famine. Uh, Then we find he's also a managerial consultant. He passed on God's advice about what Pharaoh should do. 
there needed to be careful management during the good harvests so that the food would last through the famine. Pharaoh agrees, decides that there's no one better qualified for the task than Joseph. He's appointed second in charge of the whole nation, looking after the welfare of all Egypt. And uh, perhaps his title now is something like Chief Executive Officer in Charge of Grain Collection, Storage and Distribution. But the point of it all, the point of these chapters in Genesis is not Joseph's career development. God's got bigger purposes in mind. If we jump forward a few years to Genesis 45, the years of plenty are over and we're two years into the famine. Joseph's brothers make the journey from Canaan uh, to buy grain because it's a famine there as well and they appear before Joseph. Joseph reveals who he is and he adds the detail, it's me Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Well at that point the brothers are terrified, they think uh, he's going to take his revenge on them but he reassures them in 45.5 Now do not be distressed, do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years there's been famine in the land. For the next five there will not be ploughing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. You'd think Joseph would be bitter. He'd be after revenge. But what he's learned through all the struggles and injustices is that God's at work through them that God was actually using Joseph to save lives. You see, God wants people to be saved, but God also cares about people having enough to eat. God also cares about the wise use of resources and he equips his people to play their part in doing good so that people can have those things. He did it with Joseph. So we've seen that work is good because it helps other people. The second point is that work is also good for us, for ourselves. At the very least, normally when we work we get paid for it. That's pretty good. We can buy the goods and the services we need to live and we're able to give generously to others. But even if we don't get paid, there's other benefits to the work that we do. It's a reason to get out of bed in the morning. There's a sense of achievement, there's the joy of teamwork, there's the satisfaction of creating something or helping someone. But another benefit of work, if we think about Joseph's life, is that it actually develops us. Work develops us. Joseph learned the skills of administrating and overseeing and managing resources as a slave in Potiphar's house and then later in prison. It would have been simpler and far less painful for Joseph if he'd gone gone straight from being a shepherd straight to Pharaoh's court and given the interpretation then. But God needed a skilled administrator who could lead the nation through that complicated, through that sensitive job of collecting all the grain with a heavy tax during the good years, building the storehouses, keeping records, Uh, Even when everybody says you've got enough, he kept saying, no, we need more, we need more. And then he needed someone special to be able to justly distribute that during the famine years to to make sure that there's no bribery and extortion and that the rich and privileged don't take advantage. All sorts of diplomatic leadership skills 
that Joseph would have developed as a steward and even more as a prison supervisor. None of those experiences were pleasant and yet with the benefit of hindsight, Joseph could see God's hand over it all. Over in chapter 50, his father Jacob has died and his brothers are scared that, well, now's the time Joseph will take his revenge. But once again, Joseph reassures them, chapter 50, verse 19, don't be afraid, am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. God intended his brother's jealousy for good purposes. He used all of Joseph's injustices and struggles to accomplish good in the world. Now, I'm pretty confident most of us won't have careers that are as influential or as constructive as Joseph's. But what God did in Joseph's life, uh, in Joseph's life is what he's also doing in our lives, in our work lives. I'm confident because of promises like Romans 8.28. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. God is at work in all things for our good, including work, outcomes that will be making us more like Jesus. Even when work is not pleasant, He is doing those things to make us more like Jesus. You know, it's fine for us to say, yes, isn't it wonderful how God was at work in Joseph? And yet when we go through the the very smallest injustice or, or discomfort or inconvenience at work, we want to complain. What are you doing, God? What did I do to deserve this? Perhaps it's those injustices against you that God is using to open up some new opportunities or to teach you compassion for people. Or maybe that difficult, needy work colleague God is using to teach you not to judge hastily or how to empathise or how to listen. Or maybe that missed promotion that you deserved is to teach you contentment or it'll mean less hours to work and more time and energy to prepare your Sunday school lesson. Or maybe those work challenges that stretch you beyond what you're actually capable of doing, God is using to teach you humility or new things about yourself or to lean on him, independence or to teach you to pray. And maybe those roadblocks that are standing in the way of your work goals are to teach you resilience or to be creative in your problem solving. And maybe all of those demands that are coming at once, God is using to teach you about prioritising and being organised and about what really matters. And maybe slow progress at achieving your KPIs is designed to teach you patience and the wisdom of steady planning and achievable goals. How is your work changing you? How have you developed in the last five years, say? If you're not really sure, maybe 
it's time to pull out those annual performance reviews that you filed away and not wanted to look at again and compare them. What do they say that's different? Maybe they are good for something. Uh, Work is good for us. Uh, The final way that work is good is that God can use it for his glory. Each of us who's a Christian is on show at work. Whether you're in customer relations or not, you're on show. The world is watching us and judging us. Our bosses are watching us. Our colleagues are watching us. Our assistants are watching us. Our customers are watching us. And God is glorified or not in how we work, in how we relate to people and situations, in how generous we are and how honest and how pure. The work you do and the way you do your work impacts people, may it be in a good way rather than a negative way. We'll think about that more next week when we look at the good worker. Peter commands us in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds, there it is again, and glorify God on the day he visits us. Jesus adds, Matthew 5:16, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Notice in both those verses how we're to be living in the world. People who don't know God are to be with us in our work. God calls us to work with non-Christians. He calls us to work for non-Christians and to serve non-Christians. And we're to do it all for God's glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Let's pray. (coughs) Our Heavenly Father, what uh, a big God you are. Uh, Your world is a big place and you've placed your people in all sorts of spheres throughout it. Uh, Your plans for your world are big. Uh, Your plans for good to be done and society to be stable and the gospel to go out and for you to be glorified. Help us to catch that big vision and help us to live it out in our small corner and across the world so that you might be honoured and Jesus might be King. Amen.